it's a whole chapter this morning. My goodness. For my students that are in my class, it's like story time with Mrs. Bazan's, right? It's a whole chapter. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salamone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be an injury and much loss, not, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the, to the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boats. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Cytiris, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of, of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. And we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run out on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern 
and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they had planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that, that tied the rudders. And hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Do some things ever give you trust issues? You know, sometimes you expect to be able to trust things and you just can't. So you walked in this morning and you sat down in a chair and you just trusted that it was going to hold your weight and it was fine. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you're at Brandon and Cammy Kinney's house and you're sitting there playing games and doing nothing and all of a sudden you hear a giant crack and then before you know it you're sitting on the ground because the chair did not, was not trustworthy. And then... They host our, our small group on Monday night, so we were back there Monday night, and I sit down in another chair, and it kind of wiggles a little bit, and instantly I pop up. I'm like, no, we've been here before. We are not doing this again, and off with that chair and to try to find another chair somewhere in the Kinney household that will not uh, betray my trust. So will there be a love offering for chairs for the Brandon Kimmy Kinney's house after this? Uh Chairs can betray our trust, but lots of people, lots of things can betray our trust. We live in a broken world. Literally everything will fail you at some point. Your car will break down. Relationships will have struggles. The people closest to you can hurt you and, in fact, hurt you the most. Everyone, everything in this world will fail you at some point. And so it's no wonder that we struggle to trust. Because everything around us is broken. We live in a broken world that is cursed by sin and it literally impacts everything. So where do we put our trust? Where should we put our trust? We all know the answer. 
right? We all know the answer is we must put our trust in the only one who will not fail. That's our big idea for this morning. It's not revolutionary, but it will change your life if we live it. So it's this, I will trust God. I will trust God. He is the only one who will not fail you. He is the only one who will do what he says he will do every single time he says it. God is the only one that we can trust. And so I want to look at four commitments of trusting God this morning. Four commitments of trusting God from the text. The first is this. I will trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it doesn't make sense. Look back with me actually at chapter 26, verse 32 in Acts. Acts 26, 32. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man, speaking of Paul, could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That hardly seems fair. So he's not guilty. They've acknowledged they can bring no charge against him. He could have been set free, in fact, but he appealed to Caesar. That doesn't seem right and good to me. Seems like we've already kind of run our course here. We know Paul shouldn't be guilty of the things that he's been charged with, and yet here he is, still in chains, still headed to Rome. But flip over a couple pages, 2311. I want to remind you of what God said to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11. He said this, The following night the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God said, hey, Paul, you're going to testify in Rome about me. And even in the face of multiple death threats, we've seen those over the last several weeks. They've been trying to kill Paul over and over and over. And in one of those instances, he appeals to Caesar. Why? Because he knew he was going to Rome. God said he was going to Rome. I mean, Paul could have accomplished it in other ways. He talked his way out of harder situations than the one that he appealed to Caesar before. He probably could have done something like that. But he used his knowledge of the Roman law to progress the plan of God, even though it doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, wouldn't it be easier and better for Paul to be a free man going around Rome? And able to share the gospel and go where he wanted to go and do what he wanted to do. I mean, it sure seems like it would be better. Even for the progress of the gospel going forward, to me, that seems like it would be a whole lot better. But Paul has no control over his situation. And as we're going to see as we keep looking, that creates a pretty large problem for him. But God's plans are not our plans. God's ways are higher than our ways. Look at Isaiah 55, verse 8. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't always work like we want him to work, or like we think he should work. 
oftentimes my life doesn't go the way that I would prefer it to go because almost always I would choose the easier path than God often chooses for me. God does it his way and not my way. You, you have stories like this, right, where God has done something in a way that you didn't think he should have done it. I have lots of those stories. I'll just share one with you. So when we planted this church over 10 years ago, I came on staff for a grand total of $0 a month. But I believe firmly in the mission. I believed what we were going after, and I was willing to go after it. So I jumped. And I thought, believed firmly, that God was going to bless it, and it was going to go up and to the right really quickly, we would grow because this was a mission I was convinced was from his word, still am for the record. So it was going to grow because Fort Wayne needed more churches willing to preach the word, willing to do those things. And I still believe that to this day, but God didn't do it the way I thought he would do it. I wasn't on like, you know, paid staff, like where you, the one where you make money. Um, it took four years until I was full time at Redemption four years. And I know this is kind of cliche, but I believe it. I wouldn't change any of that four years. Because God used that time in my life to grow me, to grow me closer to him, to grow my faith in him, to solidify my calling to be here in this church and use that in harder seasons than that, even though that was a very, very hard season for us to walk through. There were very hard days, but I wouldn't change them because God has used them to grow me, to be more like his son, Jesus. And I would have wrote this story way different, way easier. Like some donor just comes and drops it and I'm on full time like from day one. That's how I would have written the story. But that's not what God did because his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. He knew I needed that. And so he helped, he led us, he guided us through that story. And that's just one story I could tell. I could tell you many, many more stories that Adam would have written differently. <laughs> There's still those stories happening all the time. And honestly, there are some hard things that I've walked through that I still don't know what God was doing fully. Like why, why is that relationship now gone? Why are those people no longer in my life? Why did it have to happen in that way, God? I, I just want to have peace about these situations, these hard things I want, that I've walked through and lived. I want to be okay with what God did, but I have to get my heart there. How do, how do I get my heart there? Look at Isaiah 26, verse 3. Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You want peace in chaos? You want to be okay with your circumstances? I know you do. Because I do. We all do. We want peace. We want things to be going right. I want to feel okay with how life is going how do you do that? It comes from having a mind that is firmly fixed on the Lord. And why? Because we trust him. So we stare at the Lord. We gaze at Jesus. 
and we put our trust in him. That's how you find peace in your chaos. We like to run and find it in all kinds of other things. But we got to get our minds on the Lord. So I want to ask you this morning, what doesn't make sense in your life right now? We probably all have something that we're like, what, what exactly are you doing with that, Lord? Are you struggling to find peace in that situation now? Have you struggled in the past to find peace? Do you really trust that God is working for your good and his glory? Or are you struggling to doubt how good he is because of how He's working. It's different than I would do it. And so he maybe isn't all-knowing. So he doesn't know everything I know. Arrogance. But this is what we think. So he's doing it this way. If, if he saw it better or, or was thinking differently about me, we, we believe these lies as we look at our life. And we think, man, God, God's kind of getting this wrong. But really, it's we don't trust him. We don't trust that God could use hard things for good things. Because we like easy things. Amen? <laughs> I like easy. But God often works through the hard. And we need to trust him in it. Four commitments of trusting God. I will trust God even when it doesn't make sense. And the second is this. I will trust God through others' failures. I will trust God through others' failures. What happens next in the story takes a bad situation of a guy in prison and makes it even worse. They put him on a boat and head to a place uh, in a season that they shouldn't because a bunch of sailors are trying to make money. Let me prove that to you from the text. So look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 27. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them. So if you have the ESV and probably several other translations, there should be a little footnote there after the fast. So what it's going to tell you is that is referring to the Day of Atonement. And we know that's true because there was only one fast that was uh, prescribed in the Jewish calendar, and that happened on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in this story fell on October 5th, A.D. 59. So October 5th, A.D. 59, that's where we are. So according to Roman historians... The dangerous sailing season in this region started September 15th. So we're October 5th. That's not good. If you're not good at dates and stuff. And sailing ceased, completely stopped from November 11th to March 10th. They didn't sail at all in this region. That's how uh, intense it would get. So why in the world would they get on a ship to take a multi-day, potentially knowing multi-week journey, why would they do that? Well, look at verse 38. Verse 38 of chapter 27. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they were on a grain ship. And the emperor Claudius in Rome offered a bounty to ship owners to sail in the dangerous season 
in order to provide food to Rome. They're on the verge of a famine at this point. So he's like, hey, I will give you extra money if you're willing to sail in this crazy season. In fact, if your ship breaks apart, I will replace your ship or repair your ship. And so they're like, sweet, big payday, here we go. And so they make really bad decisions because they're thinking with their wallets and not their brains. Look at verse 10. What does Paul tell them? Paul saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul's like, hey guys, this is a bad idea. And why, why does Paul know this? Paul's a seasoned traveler. I mean, we see him traveling basically the entirety of the New Testament. He's going from place to place to place to place to place to place to place. He knew how to navigate things. He would have had to in order to survive. And in fact, this wasn't his first time where he had been faced with a crazy situation on a ship. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Three times I, Paul, was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. So one of those times he was shipwrecked is right here in the text that we're doing. But apparently there are two other ones that we're not sure exactly when. But he knew a thing or two about getting on a boat in a bad situation, apparently. Because he had been shipwrecked three times. But Paul wasn't in charge because he was a prisoner. So he gave counsel. He tried to lean in tried to say, hey guys, this is, this is not a good idea. And ultimately they didn't care because he's a prisoner. And they didn't have to listen to him because he wasn't in charge, because he wasn't free. So they set sail. And they make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and continue to make the situation worse and worse and worse. Look at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they thought, ah, this is, this is good favor for us, we're going to go. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. So they get this nice little gentle wind, and they're like, sweet, this is going to work well. Our plan is working awesome. And then verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. Do you know that historically the Northeaster is referred to as basically hurricane-level winds? They sailed into a hurricane with ships that are way less uh, sturdy than the ones that we would get on today. Not a good idea. I wouldn't want to be in a ship in a hurricane in our ships today, let alone in what they are, were doing in their day. They're supposed to go from, uh, throw the map back up there, they're supposed to go just from Fair Havens down here, just a little jump over to Phoenix, because they're just going to pop over there and then they're going to hang out there for the winter. So they thought. And then the Northeaster comes, and if you go to the next map, you'll see they get blown to sea uncontrollably and end up in Malta. A little misfire from Phoenix to Malta there. They were drifting at sea for weeks. I mean, the text says they didn't see night or day. Imagine being on that boat. Not seeing night, not seeing day, over and over and over and over, being blown around by a hurricane. 
I mean, they literally have to tie the ship together. Look at verse 17. After hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. They're literally tying things around the ship to hold it together. Then fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison cargo. We've got to make this thing lighter, so we're going to throw it overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is Luke writing it. Luke is on this boat with Paul. He made the journey. They reconnected at this spot, and he's saying, all hope is lost. We thought we were done. So Paul was right. They shouldn't have sailed. They shouldn't have done it. They were driven by their greed. They were clouded in their judgment. But here's Paul at sea, impacted by the failures of other people. And other people's failures impact you all the time. Right? You, you know what's an adventure? That some, some days not much different from being tossed to and fro by a hurricane-level wind is riding in a car with Jamie Hart. <laughs> it, that's an adventure for you. The, the fact that I'm standing here today to tell you the story is nothing short of a miracle of God on some days. I mean, you literally don't know what might happen. Like, you might go into a meeting and walk out and not be able to get back into said car, like the first time we ever had a meeting together. Uh, you might run out of gas in the busiest road in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You might inadvertently race a fire truck down Lima Road because it's, quote, not going fast enough. I can't make this up. This is, this is rude. This is real life. You might almost broadside a dump truck and have your closest near-death experience you have ever had in your entire life. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> you could have an uneventful trip. Who knows? God and the team of angels surrounding Jamie. <clears throat> I mean, there's the president and secret service, and then the army of angels surrounding Jamie is significantly greater. I am so convinced of that. And here's the reality. I ride differently in a car with Jamie Hart than I do with any other person on the face of planet Earth. That little bar, like, you know, that's there, like, I grasp that thing for dear life, and I probably pay more attention when Jamie's driving than when I am driving myself. Other people's failures and shortcomings impact what you do. I ride in a car vastly different because I have seen those failures. So take my advice. If he says, hey, I will drive to lunch, say, I would love to drive to lunch. So how do, how do we deal with the failures of others, really? I mean, they impact us. We're sitting in the crossfire of them. And like Paul in this situation, so often we can't do a thing about it. I can't change people. I can't change their failures. I can't change how they're struggling. Paul tried. 
He tried to speak truth into the situation. He was aware of what they should or should not have done, and he spoke up, and I believe that we should do that as well. But there are times when people are going to ignore us and not listen to us, and then failure and sin will impact us. So what do we do? We trust. Trust that God is working even in other people's failures. Flip a couple pages forward in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> this is a verse that most of you probably know, but I want to take a deeper look at it this morning. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He works how many things, church? All things for good. And you know what all means in Greek? All. Every single one of those things he works for good. And what is the ultimate good? What is the, the purpose that God has set forward? Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know what the ultimate purpose of God is? You more like Jesus and Jesus more exalted. You more like Jesus, Jesus more exalted. That is what God is after. And we have a promise here. So we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you know what the word predestined means? It's the Greek word pro-arizo. And it literally means it was decided beforehand. We don't have a choice. Once you accept Jesus as your savior, he is going to grow you to be more like him. Sometimes, oftentimes, kicking and screaming and wishing he was doing it another way. But he is going to grow us to be more like his son, Jesus. That is the ultimate good in your life, is you more like Jesus. Do you know that God doesn't give you a bunch of commands because he doesn't like you or he wants to make it harder on you? Do you know that God gives us commands as friendly signposts to say, this is how life is going to go best for you. If you step outside of this, it's actually going to be way worse for you. It's a loving father coming alongside, just like we do with our kids, right? Like, don't run out to the street. Why? Because if you do, you're going to get hit by a car. It's not going to go well with you. This is why God presses in. This is why he gives us these commands. They're loving commands to help us love him and serve him better. And when we find him, when we grow to be more like his son Jesus, that is where fullness of joy exists. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Me more like Jesus is best. You more like Jesus is best. But too often, I am more convinced that I want my present satisfaction more than my progressive sanctification. I want to be happy in the here and now more than I want to be holy. I want things to go easy 
more than I want God to work in a way that's pressing me to be more like his son, Jesus. And so when people screw up, it really frustrates me because it impacts my happiness. It impacts the ease of my life. And I don't want to trust God with those people. I want them to grow way faster than I will actually grow myself. Isn't that true? When we look at other people, we're like, why can't you just fix that? Get on it. Come on, get it done. And yet there are so many things in our own lives that we struggle with over and over and over. And we expect that people are going to grow way faster than we do because it impacts us and it makes it uncomfortable for me. Heaven forbid, they might make me have to trust God more and trust that he is making me more like Jesus, even in the midst of their failure. So when do people's failures most frustrate you? What does that say about what you really want from other people? When is it a struggle for you to trust God with other people? When is it most a struggle? Because those things are those questions are going to reveal your heart and what you actually want from people. And what you should actually be searching for in Jesus, because He's the only one who can satisfy that. So four commitments of trusting God. The first, I will trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Second, I will trust God through others' failures. And the third is this, I will trust God because of his word. I will trust God because of his word. Look back at Acts 27. Acts 27, verse 22. There's a change in the story here. Yet now I, Paul, urge you to take heart. What? They're in the midst of a hurricane. They haven't seen day or night. And he says, take heart. Why? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. What, Paul, why are you changing your mind here? You said earlier that we, this wasn't going to go well. And now you're saying there's going to be no loss of life. Why? Look at verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul gets the revealed word of God and he responds accordingly. He is confident in his response because God reveals the truth of the situation that looks far different than what Paul is seeing all around him. And yet the sailors don't respond that way. Look at, look at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, 14 Nights, two weeks there in this hurricane, crazy. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So what are they doing? 
They're laying these anchors down. They're, they're going with this escape ship. They're trying to say, we heard what your God said. We don't care. We are getting out of here. We're doing it our way. They try to escape. They hear the words of God and they run. Then, even after they're stopped, the centurion comes, comes and says, get back on the ship. We're not doing it that way. We're going to actually hear Paul's, God's advice to us. Then what do they do? At the end, they plot to kill the prisoners because they're like, well, surely we can't say everybody's going to be saved. What are these prisoners going to do? They're going to overrun us. They're going to do all of these things to us. They want nothing to do with what God has said. They just want to do it their way. This is so reminiscent of the story of Jonah. He gets the clear word of God, go to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh. Eventually. No, he runs the exact opposite direction to Tarshish, and then he gets the privilege of spending three nights in the belly of a great fish because he disobeyed God, and God's like, no, you're going to Nineveh. It doesn't go well for these sailors. It doesn't go well for Jonah when he does it, and it's really easy for us to be like, come on, sailors. You have the direct word of God here. Like, just get on it. Like, just listen. Or when we read Jonah, like, come on, Jonah, like, it's not that big of a deal. Just go where God told you to go. They really, really should listen to what God tells them. And yet, we have 66 books that we often fail to listen to in our day. In fact, we have God's revealed word to us. And... We have more access to that word than any other point in the history of humanity. I mean, I could pull out my phone, and I've got like four Bible apps on here right now that I could pull up and look at the Greek, look at the Hebrew. I can look at the ESV. I can look at this translation or that translation. It's all right here. And if those apps magically go away, I can go to my internet browser and find like 30,000 websites, super easy, that all have the Bible to them. Not to mention, I probably have 18 of these somewhere throughout my house and my office. And there were points in human history where if there was one Bible in a city, they were ecstatic. And yet we walk around wishing God would be clearer with us about what we should and should not be doing. Man, I really wish God would say something to me. Uh, he did. Open it. Read it. See it. See what God has. We walk around struggling to find hope and joy and peace and we are content to fix our gaze in other places. We're content to look at Netflix for joy. Or to fix our eyes on relationships for hope. Or on a paycheck for our peace. God has revealed himself to you, church. Hold it up. Right here. Come on. Hold it up. Phones work too. Come on. In your hand, you have the very words of God that he has revealed to you to tell you this is how life is going to go best for you. And yes, maybe he doesn't have a direct command to you like Paul got, but there's a whole lot of information here to help you make good, godly, wise decisions and see him more fully. And it sits on our shelf. And it collects dust. Look back at Isaiah 
you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. How do we stay our minds on the Lord? We open his word. We seek him in his word. We get our hearts fixed on his word. And that is where peace comes. You're like, man, my life is just turmoil. I just wish there were some peace. There is a recipe. There is a promise from God. When you pursue him, when you see him, he will keep you in perfect peace. We can trust God. And he tells us why. Over and over, we see him work in stories. You've seen him work in your life. He's trustworthy. And yet, we run to so many other places. So let me ask you, what does your time in the word say about where you really put your trust? Four commitments of trusting God. I will trust God even when it doesn't make sense. I will trust God through others' failures. I will trust God because of his word. And I will trust God because he won't fail. I will trust God because he won't fail. Look back at verse 39 of chapter 27. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Paul was moving. Paul was moving towards Rome. Like God said he would, Acts 23, 11, remember, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When God makes a promise, we can take it to the bank. He will not fail. He cannot fail. In the difficulty of Paul's life, he doesn't fail. He says, you're going to Rome, and he gets him to Rome against all odds. We can trust the promises of God, like Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. You feel alone? You're struggling with that feeling, that sense of loneliness? God has not left. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You feel like, I just don't even think anybody cares. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. It might feel like nobody in your life cares, but God cares. He cares deeply for you. And he's promised that you can cast your anxieties on him. The things that wreck you, you can cast on him because he cares for you. 
How about Lamentations 3.22? I just keep sinning. I can't get out of this pattern. I feel like I'm at the end of God's mercy. I can't figure it out. Look at the promise in Lamentation 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Ever, never, ever. I just want this peace you've been talking about. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace we all so desperately want already exists. Because do you know that the most adversarial relationship that you could have is between you and God because of your sin? The wrath of God should be poured out on us. But because of what Jesus did for you, we have peace with God. That relationship that should be the most tense is now the closest and the best because Jesus did what Jesus did. So you want to see how God never fails? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look what God did. God created the world out of nothing. That was impossible. That God would be gracious with Adam and Eve in their sin. That was impossible. That Jesus was born in the way that he was born. When he was born, he fulfilled all the prophecy that he fulfilled. All of that, impossible. That Jesus would take on the sin and shame of the world in order to pay a penalty that I owed, impossible. In Matthew 19, Jesus interacts with a, a rich man a rich young man, and he concludes that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And here's the response of the disciples. Matthew 19, verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Your salvation was impossible if not for the God of the universe taking on human flesh, living a life that you couldn't live and dying a death that you should have died. If God didn't fail as he created the world, if God didn't fail as he accomplished the redemption of the world through his son Jesus in the particular way that he happened we can surely trust that he's not going to fail now. Church, he dealt with your biggest problem. Your biggest problem was your sin, the wrath of God that you were going to incur. But he is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. He is the God who can accomplish the impossible. It's impossible for us as humans to think this way, but it's not impossible for our God. Trust him. Trust him, church. Lean into him. Press in to him. Lean on him. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him over your circumstances. Trust him over your own understanding. Trust him over your heart desires. Trust him because he is trustworthy.
That is where perfect peace is found. A mind that is fixed on him because he trusts him. That's where we need to be, trusting the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us in that. God, I'm so grateful for your son, Jesus. I'm grateful for the truth of him defeating the power of sin and death and now actively reigning over the world at your right hand. I'm thankful that even when I fail to trust, you are still working, you are still gracious, you are still good, you are still pressing me to be more like Jesus. God, convict us in the areas that we don't trust like we should. We want us to be more like Jesus. We want fullness of joy. We want perfect peace. And what we so often fail to remember is that it's not about my happiness. My holiness gets me closer to perfect peace. So help me put off the things I need to put off. Convict me where I need to be convicted. Do that in our midst. We want to see Jesus more fully. We want to live in the fullness of joy. It's only in his presence that we find that. Help us to trust him over what we see. Help him to trust us over what we feel. Help help us to trust him over what we think we know. He's trustworthy. Help us drag our hearts there. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Stand with us and sing.
this week that we trust him as we just declared. We trust him in the midst of our circumstances. We trust him in the midst of our trials. We trust him. Father, help us to accomplish that task of dragging our hearts to the truth that you are a trustworthy God who can handle all of life's difficulties, all of life's circumstances, and our presently and actively planning those things to bring us more like Jesus and to exalt your son Jesus more. Help us to trust that this week. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved.